With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Ficini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, it's a new guest that has not been here previously, but I'm super excited to welcome him into the fold. It's Jason Timpf from over at The Volume. He's been one of my favorite people to watch do basketball content this year. He does hoops tonight over there. He's breaking down basketball constantly. He's talking about all sorts of games, anything that he watches that night. He's going to do a 10-minute deep dive, and it's going to be awesome. I'm telling you, go check that out. Jason and I are going to talk about the Lakers at the top because Jason talks about the Lakers very often on his show. And it is a worthwhile topic to try and figure out what they're going to do. And then we're going to do midseason MVP rankings because I don't know if you guys realize, realize this, maybe you did as well, Jason, but most teams are going to play their 40th game this week. So we're going to be right smack dab in the middle of the season. That's pretty crazy, right? Like it doesn't, it feels like it's gone pretty quick. Man, this season is moving and it's, it's hard yeah. to see the forest for the trees when you're in the daily grind, especially with what we do, but it's, it's moving. But at the same time, like it's, you could see like the little bits of optimism around the league. Cause we're going to talk MVP today and like you're going to talk about team success and there's three games separating the top seven teams in the league. So like anything could be mixed up within a month. And so it's really easy from anybody's perspective to talk themselves into some sort of optimistic approach because you're like, hey, we got 40 games left and we're right there, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? Like, and it's hard to find the guys who are going to be sellers at the deadline, right? It's hard to find like which teams are going to end up being buyers. Like do the Heat try and just go all in because they tend to be super aggressive? Do they try and wait until the off season to maybe make a move? Trying to determine the timing on who gets really aggressive this deadline and who decides to kind of stand pat and then who sells. It's just so tight and bunched that it's really, really hard right now to figure all of that out. I think. Yeah, I agree. You know, I was on a, of my buddy combo invited me on his show earlier today and we were Mm -hmm. talking uh, specifically about which team we thought was more likely to become a seller at the deadline, the Indiana Pacers or the Utah Jazz. And I was looking at it from the perspective of like, you know, because in terms of the standings, like you can't realistically talk yourself or either of those teams into real contention. So really it's about whether or not you care about being interesting and then what your future is. And it's like, I could see Indiana being like, man, we got Tyrese Halliburton, you know, Ben Matherin's c- coming along. Andrew Nemhart's really good. Miles Turner, we're going to extend him. I, could, I think they're the one that's more likely to kind of keep the ship together. But like, I think Utah's, the, but again, it's like everything is so jumbled that who knows, perhaps in Utah, they're sitting around like we got to, we, maybe we're going to make a move. Maybe we're going to try to go after this thing. Like who the heck knows, man? Yeah. And it's really interesting just because like in those two teams cases, like organizational history and like, or, or, front office personnel history is so important, right? Like Danny Ainge, I think tends to be a guy that when he gets to a place would prefer to tear it down a little bit if he has the ability to do so. Whereas Indiana does tend to be more of like a status quo organization, really likes continuity, really likes to build internally. They have, 
older owner. They have a core that they can build around already with Tyrese Halliburton and Ben Matherin and Chris Duarte. And maybe if Andrew Nemhard is like a pretty real starting guard, like he's been this year, it's a really, really interesting spot. Like I almost, I think I would go Indiana is more likely to keep the status quo. Which that's what I, that's feed- what I meant. I'm sorry if I wasn't clear about yeah. that. Yeah, I think Utah's more likely to become a seller. Which feeds really interestingly into what we want to start with, right? The Los Angeles Lakers, because if there has been one move that has been talked about throughout the entirety of the season in terms of the trade deadline, it is this insufferable buddy healed Miles Turner to the Los Angeles Lakers rumor. And I don't know about you. Like, I, I feel like that kind of feels dead to me. What about you? It has to be right. I mean, okay. So yeah. if you're, if like, let's, let's put our general manager hats on. So if we're, if we're uh, managing Indiana and we've got all of the backcourt talent that we have, almost a plethora, like, man, like we haven't even talked about how Buddy Heald's in that backcourt. You know, we haven't even talked right. about how TJ McConnell's in that backcourt. Like, chances are they could move a couple of those guys and stay with their, their timeline. But like, what would be the perfect, center to have be you know the foundational front court piece for your like this developmental period for your young guards how about the one that can block shots and make threes like you know and and can score the basketball a little bit attacking closeouts and things along those lines like he's kind of perfect miles turner is for what they're trying to do here in the future my i haven't seen the numbers thrown around but i would imagine they could get him relatively affordably like i would think if i was miles turner i'd be jumping for joy if i could get 20 million per right so like it's it's one of those things where i i think that is dead what makes it so unfortunate is it wasn't just alive before the season i think indiana wanted to do it and i and i think it was rob and genie who pulled pulled away from that situation over the two picks which is a whole other separate conversation but i do think you're right i think that indiana deal is probably off the table at this point one on top of it, like Adrian Wojnarowski, like reported about this, right? Like, and when Woj speaks, like you, you feel like there's probably something there in terms of mm-hmm. like the extension window being pretty real for the Pacers. The other part of it is the Pacers have a crazy amount of cap space, which mm-hmm. means they could actually set up the Miles Turner contract in a way that is very beneficial to them while also setting it up long term for them where they're paying him a little bit less than other teams would have to, if they were to sign him like front loaded. Uh, the, yeah. You could, well, you could give him a balloon payment almost this year. Basically you could give him like eight or $9 million more this year and then set the contract like descending where it, you know, maybe it's like a four $100 million contract uh, from 2023, 24 until the next four years out. But you can offer him eight more million dollars this year which gives him very real incentive to sign because he's getting an $8 million balloon payment. So I just really think that there is a lot of, there's a lot of synergy there in terms yeah. of capability to make this work. If you're the Indiana Pacers and you're Miles Turner and you're trying to figure out how to keep this thing going, especially when they're 20 and 17 and they have this thing going in like a really exciting way, like a really fun, fun. style of basketball. Yeah. Yeah, and they compete, and like even when, even during the stretches of the year where things have gotten rough, they haven't ever like gone like through extended stretches where they're not competing. Like they they've got like a really good basketball character, if that makes sense. Well, they play super unselfishly. Like I was looking at numbers for rookie rankings, which I have coming this week. People of the show go to the Athletic, subscribe there. Theathletic.com slash game theory is a good link to use to subscribe to the Athletic. Uh, but they are actually second in the NBA right now in passes per game. 
And wow. they're second in the NBA right now in terms of, if I remember correctly, potential assists per game. Uh, some of their shooters have been a little bit off over the course of the last two months, really. Ben Matherin, I think, is shooting like 19% in his last 19 games from three he or was something due. crazy. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was due to fall off a cliff a little bit at some point. But, you know, they just really move the ball. They play super unselfishly. And obviously it's Tyrese Halliburton at the top of the snake that's like really kind of keeping this thing together. But more than that, like Andrew Nemhart is super unselfish. Crystal Warte keeps the ball moving when he's out there. Like they just have a lot of guys that are all about keeping everything moving unselfish basketball and they're super fun to watch because of it but because of that i think that they are not likely to end up selling really at the deadline i think that it's kind of hard to pinpoint who the seller is for the lakers which makes this conversation very difficult so let's start here if you were the lakers would you be trying to buy and make an all-in move or would you be trying to set yourself up for this summer in order to potentially make a star trade. Like they will have multiple picks that they can move in such a deal. They'll have real flexibility in terms of the cap because the Russell Westbrook deal comes off. There's a lot of things that they could really make intriguing by waiting, but like then you're wasting a year of LeBron James. You're wasting a year of Anthony Davis. What would you do if you were in charge of the Los Angeles Lakers? Do you think that this core is worth investing in and trying to help? So because uniquely because it's the Los Angeles Lakers and all they really have to do is demonstrate a brief window of competence to restore faith in the in the young basketball players of the world that would love to play for them, I would go all in on this LeBron James window. Uh, mainly just because I'm more of a title or bust kind of guy. Um, and, and from that standpoint, you know, we just know by looking throughout NBA history that in order to win at the highest levels, you don't just need a star. You need one of the stars, like one of the preeminent guys in the league. And, you know, with this, like this, I I think LeBron's a little under the radar right now. Last 18 games, 31, eight and seven. They're like plus 80 something when he's on the floor, minus 80 something when he's off the floor. He's averaging like 34 since AD went out on 58% shooting. And they're winning all his shifts. That's the important detail. So like he's playing at an extremely high level right now with some, pretty iffy talent if you're looking at the degree of difficulty of what he's pulling off I mean there's not a guy on the roster who's over 6'5 that can dribble not named LeBron because of the Anthony Davis injury that's the lack of talent that they're working with there so many of their lineups are three guard lineups four guard lineups they're they're playing Charlotte tonight guess what like Charlotte's gonna get 15 offensive rebounds or more that game just because of their wings jumping over the top of their players in that game that they lost back at Staples Center it was just you know, Mason Plumley getting boxed out by, you know, like Dennis Schroeder down the stretch of the game. Like, it's just they have so many fundamental personnel weaknesses. But I am a big believer in slotting. And I do think that when you start to put guys in proper roles, things would kind of even out. And so I am a big believer that a couple of moves on the periphery, especially that just give it for, for starters, give LeBron a fighting chance during this at AD. But then when AD comes back, everything into place, that's where the slotting becomes a factor. I'd be looking at Kyle Kuzma from the Washington Wizards. I'd do, um, yeah. uh, were, I, 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 th- I thought he was awesome with L.A. the last time, but he directly addresses that perimeter size issue that the Lakers have dealt with a bunch this year. He's really good as a, uh, as a wing crasher on the defensive glass. He also had a natural cutting chemistry with LeBron 
He's got like that yeah. little pop shot floater in the mid range too, which is so vital in tight space environments to score as a cutter. Like I, I, he'd be a guy I'd have my eye on. I still like Boyan Bogdanovich. I, I even think a lot of these guys in Utah on the periphery, like I, as stupid as it sounds, but a, like a second round pick and uh, Patrick Beverly for like Rudy Gay. Just get a guy who's six eight who could put yeah. the ball on the floor. Like maybe that would help a little bit, even and that would be a less aggressive move that would save their assets for after the season. You know, I, I just would like to see them do something because at the end of the day, if LeBron's going to play this good, and if Anthony Davis is going to at some point in the next two months re- return to the level that he was at before the injury, they're four and a half games back of the sixth seed to get out of the plane. So it's not like even with yeah. as bad as it's been that it's a disaster. Give them a fighting chance. That's that's literally all I ask is just give them a fighting chance. <laughs> I tend to agree with you. When I watch the Lakers, they fight, they scratch, they claw. Like this team actually wants to be competitive. Every single time Mm -hmm. you watch them, you're just like, this team really, really wants to compete right now. They fight, they have close games. They play everyone super close. It feels like, you know, sometimes they're down 20. No 20 point lead in Lakers games is safe. It feels like either way. Either way. They're up 20. (laughs) Yeah, if they're up 20, it feels like things can come back down to earth. If they're down 20, they're going to get super aggressive defensively and try and push it back and and make it a tight game at the end. Everything is going to be a super tight game, and I just feel like the name Kyle Kuzma is the one that I keep coming back to as well. Uh, He has been awesome this year, first and foremost, as a legit shot creator who can get to that little push shot in the mid-range, who can knock down threes. Like He's actually become like a fairly sizable volume three-point shooter who is confident and comfortable knocking down shots. I think he's shooting 34, 35% from three, but you actually kind of have to close out on him in a pretty real way. You have to pay substantial attention to him when he has the ball because he is so creative and because he has gotten quite a bit better in my opinion as a passer and playmaker. Like you looked at the, you look at those years, at the Lakers, it was 1.5 assists, 1.9 assists, 2.5 assists. He's averaging like four assists per game now with the Washington Wizards. He makes the right passing reads at a really, really high level. The other thing about Kyle Kuzma is we know that that dude loves LA. Hell like, yeah, he does. <laughs> we know that that guy would not mind living the rest of his career in LA, which means I think that they can actually move one of those two first round picks for him, one of the 2027 or 2029 first, and feel confident and comfortable that there's going to be like real return on investment, not just this year, but long term, because you get his bird rights moving forward. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of move that like just makes a lot of sense to me. And on top of it, you don't have to move the Russell Westbrook contract to be able to do that. Patrick Beverly's deal actually lines up very, very well within such a deal. Like are the wizards going to do better than like unprotected 2027 or like maybe like top two protected 2027 first round pick and an expiring deal for Kyle Kuzma. I'm not convinced they do. Are you? No. And, and let's be clear. Let's put our GM hats on again. Let's pretend we're in Indiana and we're evaluating the value of picks. Is there a pick that I would want more than one that Genie Bus and Rob Palinka's competence directly relates to the uh, to the outcome of that pick? Like, I'm sorry, but like, and, and with LeBron's age, like, it's it's just one of those things where I I'm with you. I think I, I think those I think there's a lot of value in those two particular picks, which is what's so particularly frustrating about the situation is they straight up have the means with which to give reinforcements to this group. I, I'm yeah. glad you brought up the spot up shooting piece with Kuzma because I I 
do not care about three point percentages as it pertains to spot up yeah. guys, as long as they're not off the map. Like, yeah, if the dude's in the twenties, that's an issue. Just ask Russell Westbrook. But like, it's so much more about whether or not the team is guarding you because in the type of volume that you're getting from spot up shooting, whether it's four or five shot attempts a game, you know, one more make here, one more miss there could swing a percentage a little bit, but really it's like, I don't care if you're shooting 38% on wide open threes that no one's guarding you. Kyle Kuzma is an aggressive spot up player. He thinks up here that he's a lights out spot up shooter and teams guard him like that. They, ch- they chase him off the line. They're scared of him when he shoots. It, it's all, it's to me that matters. The reputation matters more than the actual three point percentage. I think, I think he immediately solves so many specific problems with that Lakers group. He n- is such a natural fit with LeBron James and Anthony Davis. I think it's a no brainer. Yeah, no, that that's the one that really lines up to me, like across the board. I mean, like speaking of just like having that confident and part of its confidence, right? Like Austin Reeves is a good shooter. I don't think he's a hyper elite shooter by any stretch of the imagination. He's made 36% of his threes this year. He made 31 last year. His last two years at Oklahoma, he was like in the low thirties because he took a ton of pull-up shots. Like his shot quality there. Different shot profile. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Totally different shot profile. But at the same token, he's just confident as shit. Like that dude feels like it's going in every time. And because he is such a capable processor of basketball, you do have to close out on him because if not, he's going to find the open man. He's going to find the open spot. He's going to find the open gap and be able to drive and put pressure on your defense. And it's the same with Kyle Kuzma, that ability to actually just make plays with the ball in your hand. It's really, really critical. I mean, the guy that I've been looking at for a while is Eric Gordon, but like, I feel like the salary number is a little bit too high if they're going to go out and they're going to try and get a Kyle Kuzma type. Uh, Like the thing that I was trying to figure out, is there like a three team deal where you send Russell Westbrook to a team with cap space like San Antonio, and then you essentially use their cap space to like filter Eric Gordon with a second person over to the Los Angeles Lakers. Like that would be an interesting name for me because he's tough he is physical. He can knock down shots. He can play with the ball in his hands. That's what I'd be looking for. Guys that maybe in Eric Gordon's case play bigger than six foot three, six foot four, uh, or guys that are six foot five to six foot nine in Kyle Kuzma's case and can do a lot of different things with the ball, not just be a shooter, although shooting is paramount. They do need someone that can be a confident shooter. You just need 35. You don't need, you know, a sniper. You don't need 42% from three at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, I like Eric Gordon's game and I think he'd fit really well. Um, and he does play bigger than his, uh, size as it pertains to, you know, isolation defense and just his overall physicality, his ability to box out where I'm specifically concerned for the Lakers is crashing from the perimeter in defensive rebounding situations And that's where getting a guy with real height and length, I think, is so vital. You know, the 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 Lakers are just they've lost multiple games in crunch time situations this year because of an inability to secure defensive rebounds. Basically, these 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 battles that are taking place on the perimeter between guys like a Patrick Beverly, Dennis Schroeder, Austin Reeves, Lonnie Walker, they're losing too many of those particular battles in long rebound situations. And so even though I like Eric Gordon, I like the way you kind of functionally broke down how they could do that with the Spurs. I'd be more interested in it if that second player was over six foot seven, because it's just, I just think that that would go so much further towards, you know, for instance, let's, let's look at Lonnie Walker. Lonnie Walker is having an interesting season. He's shot the ball pretty well in spot up situations. 
he yep. applies real rim pressure and pick and roll. He's one of the few, like early in the season, he was one of the rare bright spots for the Lakers in pick and roll because LeBron was being so passive trying to get downhill. Like he was just really get, getting his uh, head of steam going towards the rim. Don't you like him better as a two than a three? Like it, it's really yeah. that simple. Like I like it fundamentally with the geometry of the way those lineups work when he's battling with someone closer to his size where now his athleticism is like the differentiator between him and that guy versus right. the thing that allows him to maybe hold his own sometimes against the six, eight guy. That, that's where I fundamentally don't like the way that their roster is put together. Well, that's where like the boy and Bogdanovich name is less interesting than Kuzma, for instance, right? Because Bogdanovich is not a rebounder. Like he just does not crash the glass all that often. I think he's averaging under four rebounds per game, despite the fact that he's six foot eight. He's a great shooter. He has like an interesting post game that the Pistons seem to use very often along with Sadiq Bay's like very often. <laughs> ducking post-ups. I don't ever want to see a duck in post up again from the Detroit Pistons. That's where I'm at. <laughs> like they do. It's like a significant part of their offense. I guess that without Cade Cunningham, you got to get it where you can, but like yep. it's a uh, it, sneaky. I've been watching a decent amount of Pistons because I have to do rookie rankings for this week. And what's your Jaden Ivy take? Yeah. I don't think he's been very good to be honest. I think that he looks really, really sped up all the time. And he's super inefficient, but you can see where it's going to come. You can see like where the light is going to flash on uh, once the game slows down for him. And again, he's another one of those guys where like, there's just no space out there. Like those Isaiah Stewart and Jalen Duran lineups, uh, Pistons fans were really excited about them early on, rightfully because they started to defend a little bit. Teams have figured out how to deal with those lineups. And it's largely just by putting Jalen Duran in ball screens. Like, I think that, with the Pistons, there's just no space for Jalen Duran because teams don't really respect Isaiah Stewart as a shooter yet. I know the numbers say that like he can shoot, and I think that long-term he probably will shoot, but nobody thinks of him as a shooter yet. So every time that Jaden Ivey is driving, there's just no space for him in the paint. On top of it, like Sadiq Bey has like completely lost the shooting in every single way it feels like. It, that team just feels like a mess to me. Every time I watch them, I'm just like, there's no defensive cohesion here. There's very little offensive cohesion here. Like they, they actually run better with Killian Hayes out there, which is not ideal to me because as excited as I am about like the Killian Hayes renaissance, he's not a starting point guard in the NBA. He's like a good backup, I think. So I, yeah, it's tough. It, they're a tough watch when I watch them. Jaden, I quick take. I... I agree the Pistons are terrible. I agree that he's not having a good season. I think within the next five years, he's going to be one of the best in the league at beating people off the dribble. His yeah. his, his ability to start, stop, and to change direction at full speed, I think is top tier. And I think he's a frightening athlete downhill towards the rim. And when they figure out some spacing stuff and when he starts to see the floor at an NBA level, I think he's going to be scary good. I've, I've, yeah. I think he's my second favorite player in that draft. Interesting. So... I actually also really like the fit with Cade Cunningham potentially because I think the thing that Jaden isn't great yet is just like processing half court reads really where yep. I want Jaden is like second side slasher, right? Talking like exactly what you're saying. Just get downhill as soon as he can. End of the day, let's just get him downhill. And Cade is more of a slow, methodical player. He's not going to drive transition play. Let Jaden drive the transition play. Let Jaden be the second side guy. He's going to have to shoot, I think, for this to completely work, but I think he will. At the end of the mm -hmm. day, I, he will. I don't know I if he's. So. Yeah, I don't know if he's going to be the second best player in that class. Like, I really like if 
people may not have noticed this, but like Jabari Smith is sneaky played 20 straight games that are kind of great. Like he's averaging 13.6, I think like seven rebounds and two assists and like maybe a steal and like over half a block while shooting 46% from the field and 36% from three. And I know he started terribly, but like now he's played more than half of his season being good. So like, I believe in him at a high level. Like I I really believe in Chet Holmgren. I mean, I don't know about you, but like we haven't seen him yet. So it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to like truly dive in there. I just saw him at summer league. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough um, to, to kind of zoom out from everything I have for the record. I have not really followed the Rockets very closely this year. So I just don't feel yeah. comfortable really evaluating his game and Chet. I want, yeah, like it, he was a sight to behold in summer league. Well, it also, <laughs> I love, I love how the, the thunder too, just like every one of their bigs is a pick and pop big. So there's just always open space to operate oh. inside, which it just, it just makes them so much fun to watch. I know we're way off into the rails of the NBA draft stuff, but I do find that class to be very interesting. And I think yeah. Jade and Ivy in a couple of years is going to be very interesting. Yeah, like Project Thunder is like one of my favorite. Everyone talks about like Project Six Nine with the <laughs> Toronto Raptors, right? When I watch the Thunder, I'm just like, this is kind of actually what this should look like because they draft guys with all sorts of positional size and length, like Jalen Williams being six six with a seven two wingspan, Usman Jang being like a six eleven ball handler, Chet Holmgren being like a seven foot ball handler, Alexei Pokushevsky being whatever the fuck Poku is, right? Like they draft all these guys that are enormous long and have real ball skill and can shoot. Whereas the Raptors, it feels like draft guys that are just big, long and athletic, and they're going to try and develop the skill level and processing ability. They have like their, their ball handling and and shooting ability is like their half court numbers are, are so bad. And it's literally just aggregate handling and shooting. (laughs) It really is. And I, I like their ability to play in transition. I get what they were doing, but I think that, the Thunder are the more interesting, you know, Project 6-9 that's happening around the league where they're trying to get so much length out on the court. But I digress. Let's jump in to midseason MVP rankings. Okay, the way that we're going to do this is I'm going to give a preamble on why I think this is the most wide open MVP race that we've seen in a long time. And then Jason and I are going to go back and forth saying five through one. Now, this isn't, there's not really an ideal way to do this functionally, unfortunately, because the race is so tight. And basically, as soon as one of us says the name, we're going to say where we have that person within this race, right? So like if Jason has, you know, Luka Doncic at five, I'm going to say, oh, I have Luka Doncic at X. Let's talk about Luka, right? And at the end, we'll recap and we'll make it easy for everyone to understand. But I think it's worth noting, this is the craziest MVP race that I can remember. Like, can you remember anything this tight and this close, Jason? No, I mean, you sent me a long list of potential candidates and I thought you even left off a couple guys. Like, Like, it's just, it's... It's ridiculous. And we talked about the standings earlier. Everyone is within real striking distance to end up with the number one overall seed. It's it's insane. Like that and so yeah. if, if you're gonna factor that in as your big MVP hammer, like for instance, what has been the narrative with Luca? Oh, he hasn't won enough games. Like they've won six straight and now they're right there. So, you know, everyone's in range. 
Yeah, it, it's just really crazy. I mean, I, I think that right now, as of this moment, there are eight guys that you can genuinely make a case for somewhere in the top five. And then on top of it, I think there are a couple other guys that are certainly in the mix. Like, much as I love John Morant, John Morant has been absolutely incredible this season. The Memphis Grizzlies are a great team in large part because John Morant has been great and in large part because Jaron Jackson has come back and really solidified the defense. I can't quite get to the point where I can make a case for John Morant over anyone in the top six. Could could you quite get there? No, I mean, the thing too is like specifically with jaw, there's a little bit of a issue too with the Grizzlies half court offense. And some of it is just functionally the way they're set up because their team is completely built around size and physicality, both on the perimeter and on the interior in a lot of ways to cover for jaws weaknesses, which then inherently leads to a lack of ball handling and shooting, particularly off the bench, which then causes them to have issues scoring in the half court. And so, and, and again, it's like when we're splitting the difference here. So for instance, for me in particular, I have a very uh, like clean MVP criteria that works for me and everybody's different. I'm genuinely curious to hear yeah. yours, by the way, I cut it in thirds. Are you in the conversation for the best player in the world? And that includes your postseason resume. Are you the best player on the best team in the league, essentially team success? And then pure value. Like how much do you specifically contribute to your team's success? And with Jaw, he's got some some uh, um, strong cases in certain areas there. But does he even remotely have a realistic case to be considered the best player in the world? He doesn't. So for me, he's kind of out of consideration in terms of winning the award and putting him on the list is a different conversation. I think he has to be. I mean, he's done a really nice job with Desmond Bain being out for half the year. Darren Jackson's been out for a significant chunk of games. That dude is competitive as hell. Dude, he was going off in that third quarter just with how hard he was playing and his emotion against the Sacramento Kings last night as they were pulling away. Like, I love that dude but I can't put him over Giannis. Like, what are we even doing here? You know what I mean? No, I'm totally with you. Like, it's a really, really hard nut to crack this year. Like, Shea Gilgis-Alexander is averaging 31 points per game and looks like an alien every time (laughs) I watch him. I'm just like, how does this guy do this every single time that, like, he slithers into the lane and, like, somehow contorts his body for, like, a finger roll on the opposite side of the rim from where he started his drive? I couldn't even get him in the top 10. Like that's how good this race is this year. Like someone like DeMar DeRozan last year was having a fairly similar year to Shea Gilgis Alexander in a number of ways. The bulls were way better than what the thunder were last year or are this year. But like DeMar DeRozan was like four or five last year at this point in the MVP race. I can't get Shea in the top 10 as much as I love Shea Gilgis Alexander and think he's been unbelievable. Same goes for Devin Booker. Like, I have Devin Booker, I think, at, like, 10 or 11 right now. Devin Booker has been great. We just saw it today. I don't know if you watched any of the New York Knicks-Phoenix Suns game that happened. They are... I missed that game. They are just, like, unable to do anything on offense without him. And they're obviously ravaged with injuries right now. It's not just Devin Booker that's out. But particularly, you can really feel it with that team. They have no chance to derive any half-court offense when Devin Booker is not on the court. And it's a substantial, substantial problem for them moving forward. I think as you try to compare them to some of the other teams at the top of the Western Conference, but Devin Booker's had a great year. He's averaging like 27 and has been the critical piece of a team that, you know, up until his injury, I think was third in the 
Western Conference. Like they're, they're his just, passing has been unreal this year too. A hundred percent. He's making great plays for his teammates. Like it's he's gotten better defensively to where like he's no longer anywhere near a sieve and hasn't been for like a year and a half now. It's really really hard to limit this thing down. And I'm gonna raise a couple other names here. Do you have Stephen Curry in your top five? I do not. I also I also do not. think I think he might in his available minutes he might have been the best player that I've saw that I saw this year in terms of how he played in his minutes that he was on the floor. But he's I, not in my top five I, MVP. I think I agree with you. I kind of just did it on the basis of minutes. He's played 894 minutes this year. He's averaging 30 points, seven rebounds, seven assists, shooting 50% from the field, 43% from three, 92% from the line. <laughs> he has been absolutely a video game. Everything that Stephen Curry has done this year has been a video game. He is every bit as good as he was at his peak back when he won back-to-back MVPs. That's how good Stephen Curry is right now. I decided to go for five other guys only because I think that having only played to this point 26 games when some of the other guys have played 35, 36, other than one guy that's on my list, is a pretty real differentiator in terms of value derived from playing time that you've been available. Uh, The last guy here is Zion Williamson. Do you have Zion Williamson in your top five? I do not. I do not. Zion, for me, was number seven. I think that there are six guys that are kind of in a tier above everyone to an extent, but it's very, very close within those six guys. And I think you can make a case almost any way within those six guys. But Zion Williamson fell just a little bit short for me. Why did Zion fall short for you? It's still the defense stuff for me. I mean, did you did you happen to catch uh, Pelicans Grizzlies on Saturday night? Jaron yeah. Jackson killed him in that fourth quarter, yes. and like he's showing, he's making more defensive plays, like in terms of playmaking. You know, there's a difference between defensive playmaking for me, which is like like the steal for the runout dunk or yeah. the big block in a help side possession or something like that, versus like possession to possession defensive consistency. And even though Zion has become a better defensive playmaker, he still, when he's in the action defensively on any given possession, is a weak link. And like yeah. like Jar- Jaron was cooking him in that fourth quarter as the as the Grizzlies pulled away. And uh, th- there have been too many games this year where specifically down the stretch where I've seen him be attacked. And I hate that yeah. because like it comes off as like oh we're hating on Zion now. It's like no 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 we're literally talking about the top ten players in the world. Okay, like right. we're talking we're differentiating between Zion and. Kevin freaking Durant. Okay. So there's a difference between that, the, the context of the, of those two conversations. But for me, like as good as the Pelicans have been and as good as he's been, there's just the, the five guys that I have on my list, I think all have clearly better cases. Yeah. The margins here are an important distinction, right? Like Mm -hmm. when we're talking about any negatives with any of these guys, it's in the context of we are comparing Zion Williamson to the other top six players in the world. And while Zion Williamson is probably like somewhere between the seventh and 10th best player in the world. And Hey, that's pretty good. I don't know if you knew that. Like (laughs) it is very, very difficult to not do anything, but like kind of parse through the margins and like really, I don't know, like you're you're just so nitpicky on a lot of this stuff. Like you have to mm-hmm. be on some level when 
Luka Doncic is out here dropping 60-20-10s, and Giannis is going back-to-back 40-20 games for the first time since the 1980s, and Nikola Jokic is, like, breaking basketball every night. And, you know, Jason Tatum is doing what he's done for the best team in the league this year. And it's just like you can go down the list in terms of everything that has been so impressive. I talked about this in the last show. I don't think I've ever seen this much star power and this high of a level in terms of number of elite individual performances across the NBA point blank period. Do you feel like you can remember a time where there's been more star power in the NBA? Because I certainly cannot. No, not at all. It's insane. Like like when you're ranking players, numbers get thrown out that come off as disrespectful that aren't. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like I thought, like I put Jason Tatum at six in my player rankings this summer, just trying to tip the cap to what I thought was a really impressive playoff run. In retrospect, I was actually too low, but like everyone thought I was crazy. And I was like, dude, he's at six. Like it's just the numbers are the, the, like is Damian Lillard a top 10 player in the league anymore? Like resoundingly no. Like absolutely which is not crazy, which, which is, is insane because he's so damn good. He's so damn good, you know. And so it's just, I think it's great for our game, first of all, because like I think, I think we're heading into a golden age of NBA basketball. I think within the next ten years, you're going to see a massive growth in popularity, both domestically and globally. And I couldn't be more excited about it. And I think it's driven by just the absurd level of talent. And as far as the skill performances go, I think in general the increase, the increase in skill level especially with pull-up shooting. Because like most NBA coverages are designed to concede pull-up shooting at the expense of taking away the easier reads that are available, right? And so yeah. now all these guys are such such good off-the-dribble shooters. Like I was, I've been watching a lot of John Morant the last couple of days. Like John Morant is so much more skilled than the other freak athlete guards that came before him. It's not close. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. runs laps around John Morant, or excuse me, around uh, Russell Westbrook and around Derrick Rose and around John Wall. Like he runs laps around those guys in terms of his on-ball skill with the handle and with the pull-up jump shot and stuff. And so when you get hot. When you get that groove going and you're just seeing the ocean instead of a rim, like you can go for 45, 50 points because that pull-up jump shot is being conceded by most of these coverages. I mean, right. it, I saw. I don't know if you saw that stat. I think they broke it last night. I'm not sure. But we've had some crazy stretch of like, I think it's at least 10 nights in a row in the NBA where at least somebody scored 40 points. I can't remember <laughs> exactly. Ridiculous. Yeah, That's it, so it was ridiculous. It was in one of the broadcasts. I think it was when I was watching Nuggets Celtics uh, uh, from last night. And they were saying it was something crazy. Like it's at least 10 consecutive calendar days where somebody in the NBA has scored 40 points. It's unbelievable. Well, and just like think about John Morant versus Derrick Rose, right? Think about how long it took Derrick Rose just to get down like the pick and roll processing reads, right? Like, John Morant came to the NBA capable of making live dribble passes with either hands, like cross corner whip passes to the corner, like underneath the basket, like left hand whip passes up to the wing. Like he came to the NBA with that stuff. The level to which basketball is leveled up in terms of skill level, processing ability. And I think part of it is like a skill development from young, like youth, but B just the fact that, evaluators I think are getting better at putting the ball in the right guy's hands early on that get everyone involved, make the highest level passing reads, get everyone involved from like a motion offense standpoint. And just from like an offense where everyone wants to have ball movement, like the warriors, I think everyone says like the warriors and Stephen Curry, like ruined youth basketball. 
I actually think that like some of the stuff that's trickled down from the Warriors in terms of running all sorts of ball movement, running all sorts of flow ball screen offense has been really, really helpful in that regard. Absolutely. I, 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 well, I, I like the, the level of offensive organization in Golden State in terms of the frequency with which they run actions and sets is not just more than the rest of the league. It's way more than the rest of the league. It's, it's crazy right. how frequently they set their players up for success with, uh, with advantage situations. I'm glad you brought up the, 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 you know, the personnel, the, you know, the front office personnel and having a better understanding of who to put the ball in the hands of. Can you imagine if LeBron James in 2003 came into the league and they got him with a live dribble 30 feet from the basket? start setting in ball screens like it would have been crazy like they had him running the baseline off of like like you know (laughs) uh floppy action like it just didn't make any sense the kind of stuff they were doing with uh with lebron when he was young and it's just you're right like the the game of basketball at every level from the front office to the coaching staff to the players has just like surgically figured out how to be more productive on offense. And you know, what's crazy is the defenses are almost keeping up like offensive ratings are <laughs> yeah. offensive ratings are t- ticking up, but it's not like it's a runaway train. Like the defenses are keeping up too. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Defensive innovation over the next like decade of basketball is going to be fascinating to track. Like, I feel like it's hard because you need to be able to rebound as the Los Angeles Lakers are showing this year, but like you also need to have all sorts of like athletic switchability out there to be able to like, just manage all sorts of mismatches that offenses are becoming so good at creating, but this is all a massive digression from MVP rankings. (laughs) All right. Number five for me, I have Joel Embiid. Where okay. do you have Joel Embiid? Joel was not on my list. Yes. The um the big thing with Joel, there's a little bit of health stuff and availability stuff with him. Yeah. Um, the other big one for me was especially early in the season. I thought a big chunk of their struggles, especially because once they were like, I think they were 500 through their first like 15 games. I think it might have been yeah. 20 games. Um, I want to say they were like 12 and 12 at one point. Correct me if I'm wrong there. But the uh, uh, during that early portion of the season when they were struggling, uh, Joel Embiid was doing a really bad job running up and down the floor in transition defense. And that yeah. was a huge, huge part of why they were struggling. I was actually very critical about this with Anthony Davis as well. Um, and to me, like when we're looking again, when we're comparing you to other guys on this list that have had more consistent effort throughout the season, to me, that was a differentiator. Um, but when you factor in where they are in the standings, that kind of tough start to the season, I had him outside of that range. But I do think Joel's having another kind of like under the radar fantastic season. Like we all jumped on the Anthony Davis train for how dominant he was during that stretch. And Joel's kind of been doing the same thing over here for the last you know month or two. So I, I yeah. do want to make sure that we shout him out properly, but I did not have him on my list. So here was my case for Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid is currently averaging 33 points, 10 rebounds, five assists per game. He's shooting 53% from the field, 33% from three, 85% from the line. He is currently carrying the number three defense in the NBA. He is the centerpiece, the rock that holds that entire defense together. Guys like James Harden are out there. Tyrese Maxey has been an aggressive defender when he was healthy, but not a great defender, in my opinion. He's still trying to manage uh, how to use his aggressiveness to its best capabilities while still being six foot two or so. Uh, Anthony Melton is an aggressive defender. I think Tobias Harris has gotten a lot better defensively than what he's gotten credit for over the course of the last couple of years. But at the end of the day, Joel Embiid is the guy that's like carrying that thing on his shoulders. Like he is Atlas right now defensively while also averaging 33 points a game. He is second in the NBA in scoring while doing so actually at a very efficient level because 
he is shooting 85% from the line on 12 free throws per game. Like currently he is a true shooting percentage that is about seven points higher than league average. It, anytime that you have 33 points per game on a true shooting percentage that is that much better than league average while you're also carrying a top three defense. I have to have you somewhere in these rankings. Now I also dinged him a little bit for playing time. He has played so far this season, 957 minutes. That is going to be about, for instance, 33% lower than Jason Tatum has played. Right. I also just think on a permanent basis, he's been better than Jason Tatum this year. I do. Uh, He is averaging an absurd number of points while being a top five defensive player in the NBA. It's a similar argument to Giannis in a lot of ways, I think. But I I just kind of had to get Joel Embiid on here somewhere. I want to shout out his perimeter shooting, too. Because I think it's such yeah. a vital skill for him particularly because I don't think he's a great passer. Like Anthony Davis, he's made some strides over the last couple of years. But still, when it comes to like really swarming defenses that try to get the ball out of his hands, he can struggle a little bit making reads. So I've always thought that his ability to shoot over the top of the defense is vitally important. And it's secretly been one of the big downfalls in, of his game over the last few playoff runs is yeah. in the playoffs, he gets outside of the restricted area and he can't shoot anymore. Uh, but he's having this like ridiculous accurate shooting season, particularly from the mid range. And that makes yeah. that in, that's really encouraging to me because a lot of his jump shots, he can Joel and B can beat double teams with jump shots because he's so damn tall. Like they'll come with a double and he'll just spin over his right shoulder and shoot a jumper. Like even his game winner against the Raptors, I think was against a double team. Like it just, he just can turn and fire. And so I like, I like, I like, the way that this is kind of progressing for Philly. I had them fifth in my power rankings before the season. So I actually think they have a real chance to win the title. Um, and I, I, I'm, I think they're poised to have a great playoff run, but I do think I'm, I'm with you. If he can't be available as much as some of the top guys on this list, I don't think you can get him on, uh, you know, into that number one spot realistically. I will also say that I think in the case of Embiid, his ability to handle doubles has actually regressed a little bit this year. I, I think, think he's so? gotten a little bit worse at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, 3.9 turnovers per game. The last couple of years, he'd gotten that number to like a much more controllable 3.1, 3.1, 3.1 each of the last three years. He's like at four right now. Um, it, it's You can feel it that he seems to be not quite as comfortable with doubles which is weird because you would think that like there wouldn't be a regression and a thing that is like almost feel for the game oriented but like for whatever reason he i would bet you the numbers would indicate that he is turning the ball over more when teams are doubling him than when than what he had over the course of the last couple of years jason number five for you i had luca um and i know that's crazy but like when you're when you're really digging into it from the standpoint of comparing him to the guys that I have above him on this list. For instance, I have one guy above Luca on this list that I think has defensive limitations, and that's Nikola Jokic. But Nikola Jokic's on-off numbers are so outrageous that like you can't possibly be like, oh, well, he's screwing them over on defense. Cause it's like, no, no, no. Like they're winning all of his shifts almost every single night. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. But like, but with Luca as a differentiator from the other guys in this list, I'm uh, uh, defensively. Um, I, I can't necessarily put him into that conversation. And for the record, I want to be clear team success factors in here. I'm not the whole, give the MVP to the six seed guy. I've never been that guy. And I actually yeah. think the Mavericks are up to fourth now. 
But to be clear, like I do not blame Luca for the mediocrity of the Mavs. I think it's 100% roster related. I think as mad as people might want to get at him about being heliocentric, it's a product of that being actually the best way for this roster to play. I genuinely yeah. believe that if they somehow managed to bring in a star tomorrow, that he would get into the lab with that guy, figure out a way to play productive basketball with him, and that he would change his style to accommodate him. Like I, I am 100% a pro Luca guy. I just don't think he can be any higher than five on anybody's list. I'm guessing you have him higher, so let's hear it. I have him at three, and here is the reason why. I, I think that, like, look, you and I, we talked a little bit about this before we started. Luca's defense has not been very good this year. Like, they tried to hide him, for instance, in their most recent game on Jeremy Sohan, who has been coming on lately. Like, he's averaging 15 over his last six games. He's had some moments that have been pretty positive. But throughout his first 30 games, I think he was averaging like seven points and shooting like 47, 17, 45 from the field. <laughs> like, just like abhorrently bad efficiency numbers. Jeremy Sohan caught Luca for 20, basically like back cutting him four times, knocking down a couple of threes, getting to the line by back cutting him another time. Like it, it was just Luca's defense is pretty real in terms of how you have to work around it. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason that I have him at number three is I think this Dallas team might be the worst team in the league if you take Luca off of it. Ooh. <laughs> and- Interesting. I think they're really bad uh, around him. Like, I think they would have no chance to create any sort of offense. Number two, currently leading the NBA in scoring, 62.2 true shooting percentage, which is about five points higher than the league average. That is, when you're looking on the margins of the guy that I have at number four, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, that's actually like a somewhat substantial difference in terms of efficiency when we're talking about the best players in the world the fact that he is capable of living in that world in terms of efficiency is just very very important to me uh on top of it he's what like the second best third best passer in the world creates plays for his teammates constantly like again that offense would not run without luca and i think that like his scoring might be his second best skill behind his passing and he's currently leading the nba in scoring right like that that's the kind of player that you're talking about with Luca. I think that his value to the team supersedes anyone else's in the NBA. Just kind of straight up. I do. Uh like if you took Nikola Jokic off off of Denver, I think they probably win like 37 games, 38 games, something like after that. After changing their style completely, yes. <laughs> yeah, after changing their style, like they you know, run Jamal Murray, you know, out of a ton of ball screens. They'd involve Michael Porter Jr. as a creator more. Aaron Gordon would probably get more offensive attempts. Like they, they probably win 40 games, something like mm-hmm. that. The Milwaukee yeah, that Bucks. Makes sense. Yeah, like with Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, although Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton have been injured quite a bit this year, they would not be nearly as good. But I think that they could manage at the very least. Same with um you know, well, well, we'll talk about the guy that I have at the top, actually. I, I think that if we took that guy off the team, th- there would be some real problems. But same with Joel Embiid. Like, I think the 76ers occasionally can survive without Joel Embiid because they have Tyrese Maxey, they have James Harden, they have everyone else, Tobias Harris, etc. I do not think the Dallas Mavericks can survive a seven-game absence from Luka Doncic. Without him, that team, who creates offense for them? 
without him on the court. No, like Spencer Dinwiddie is not having a good year. I know what the numbers say. Like you watch Dallas games, like teams don't really care what he's doing out They're there. They're using frankly. him as a spot-up player more than they did last year because of how much he's struggling with his on-ball reps. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. No, it's right. So I I, I 100% yeah. agree with you. I do that I uh, with the, in terms of the limitations and the value. Um I I just think that I am just I am one of those guys that struggles with giving the MVP to lower seed. So that's why I had him lower. I get it. Uh but th- I will say this, it makes me I'm super excited to see like 5 years from now when Luka's on a real team when he can cut back his usage just a tiny bit and can be a I little know, bit right? more picky just how dominant he's going to be. I, I'm just so excited that we have like a solid decade and a half of Luka in front of us. It's going to be so good. Okay, so I'm up at number four. I have Giannis Antetokounmpo at number four. I did as well. Okay, good. So Giannis is the guy that I was talking about in terms of his efficiency being down a little bit. Uh, He currently is a 58.9 true shooting percentage while also averaging 32 points per game and 11 rebounds and six assists, whatever the numbers are. I don't have them in front of me. But Defensively, he has been absolutely top-notch this year. He and Brooke Lopez have carried the Milwaukee Bucks to a top-five defense. That's absolutely why Giannis has to be in the top five, in my opinion. But when we're talking about on the margins, the fact that he has struggled to finish from the foul line uh, quite a bit and has struggled uh, just in general as a like scorer and finisher in terms of his efficiency more than what we've seen previously, that knocked him down just a couple of slots to me when we're talking about this on the margins. So I 100% have seen the same things that you were saying. I, I I do actually have a theory there. I think that Giannis is playing a little bit more experimentally during this regular yeah. season. I think he's I think he's reached a point in his career where he sees value in the regular season as a testing ground and less value in each individual win, which I think is something that LeBron saw late in his career as well, especially there in the second Cleveland stint when those regular season teams weren't as good. Um, cause he's, I, again, this is an eye test thing. So maybe I'll, maybe someone will throw some data at me that I'm wrong, but it seems to me like he's settling for jump shots a lot more frequently. And now there's, there's a basketball reason for that in the sense that the, the inconsistency of Drew and Chris's availability has obviously yeah. affected them in terms of spot up situations in general. That team is one of the worst spot up teams in the league, uh, in their ability to make teams pay for loading up on Giannis. So like I I'm one of the I'm a big believer that that plays into it but I also think he's kind of just like working on stuff. You know what I mean? But you know it's funny. I have Giannis at 4 but he's still my pick to win the MVP this year. Because okay. I think Yeah, give me think, that case. I want to hear that. I think they're eventually going to get healthy. And I there's I don't know if you've noticed just in the last couple of games there's a little of that edge from Giannis. Uh I think he put up back-to-back 40-20s if I remember correctly. Like there's, he's kind of kicking it into gear. The team's starting to get healthy. He's still within striking distance to get that number one overall seed. I think he's obviously the best candidate to, in terms of you're just like, who's the guy on this list that is most likely to play every night and to play his ass off every single night. It's him. So I, I, he's still my best like long shot pick to win the award. But if the season ended today, I'd have him at fourth. Yeah. I think that that's completely reasonable. Yeah. Like that's kind of, I don't even know if I haven't thought about too, too much in terms of like where I think this is all going to end up. But I think you're right that in terms of what he's done so far four seems right. It's weird. Like I just looked at the shooting numbers, like 
his he's not taking more shots from the mid range. I agree with you that oh, really? it feels that way, but he's not like. But his finishing has been he's finishing like eighty percent of his shots at the basket, which is like absolutely insane. <laughs> it almost like all comes from the fact that he's shooting 64% from the line as opposed to 72% from the line, which is what he shot last year. Uh, Yeah. That's interesting. It's, it is interesting. It it is very interesting, but it does feel like he has been contextually more responsible for creating offense this year than what he's had to simply because of Chris Middleton's absence for up to the last seven games uh, when Middleton has been back, but also drew holidays missed like 10 games. Like, yeah, not having Drew Holiday for a substantial amount of time has been pretty, pretty important. And we'll see what Drew's hamstring injury looks like. Giannis also is dealing with some sort of knee discomfort. He missed the game last night against the Wizards. So we'll find out what that is at some point, maybe. But I I think that you're probably right that Giannis rises in these rankings because I just like trust Milwaukee to be good. Yep. Don't you? Like at the end of the day, like I, this is the, they're like the most trustworthy team probably among this group. So, okay. I went at number four. We both had the same number four. I will let you go at number three. Okay. I had Jason Tatum at number three. <clears throat> I had Tatum at six and I did not feel great about it. <laughs> I felt horrible about it. <laughs> oh man. Terrible. Oh, I feel like you got to defend yourself. So why don't you lead the way? <laughs> I think you and it purely came down to the fact that like I couldn't get him into the top two. I think that he is much more important or I think that Luca is a lot more important to Dallas than Jason Tatum is to Boston with all due respect to Tatum. Again, I think Dallas would probably be the worst team in the league without Luka Doncic. Like I, I think that that team is just kind of a mess. Uh, Jason Tatum has been phenomenal, but I do think his pull-up shooting has fallen off just a little bit since that incredible first quarter start that he had. And because of that, can I, can, Bob, sorry, can I share a really interesting stat for you? Yeah. yeah, did, you yeah know, go for it. did you know that Kevin Durant is shooting 20% better on pull-up jump shots than Jason Tatum? Yeah. We're going to talk about Kevin at some point. I imagine. <laughs> uh, Kevin has been like breaking my brain throughout the course of the season, but if, Feels like Jason has just been very slightly worse as a pull-up shooter over the course of this little time. And it almost felt like that first 20 games was just like not quite sustainable in terms of level of shooting from the entirety of the Boston Celtics. And we're starting to see a bit more of a reversion. And now that we're seeing that Boston is playing some tougher teams and they are, look, they're still 26 and 11, right? They're still, Absolutely unbelievable. But if you look at their last seven or their last, uh, what is it? It is their last 10, I believe. They have lost like maybe six of their last 11 or something like that. I just keep throwing out numbers. They lost five out of six. Then they won four in a row. Then they lost to Denver. I think if I remember correctly. Yeah. And and like they beat the Bucks in that time, but they've lost to Denver, they have lost those weird games to the Magic, but more importantly, like they lost that tight game. Um, not the tight game, but like the important showcase game to the Golden State Warriors. They also lost to the Clippers by like 20 points. Um, they played that tight game with the Lakers where they had to go to overtime with the Lakers lost. to manage yeah. them. Probably should have lost that game as well. And, and it feels like they aren't quite as cohesive as they were early on now that the floor spacing around Jason Tatum it's fallen off just a little bit. And now that his pull-up shooting has fallen off just a little bit, 
I also think that Kevin Durant is having a better defensive season than Jason Tatum. I think that Giannis and Joel Embiid are having better defensive seasons than Jason Tatum. The only reason I almost got Jason Tatum onto my list was because of minutes played. Uh, I almost ranked him ahead of Joel Embiid just purely because he's played like 35% more minutes. But I don't know. We're still early enough in the season where I just kind of rolled with it and, and went with the guy that I think has just been like a hair better this year. So, you know, what's funny is like the Boston Celtics are such an arrogant basketball team and they're also <laughs> kind of, they're also kind of a frustrating watch for me. They, they play like a team who's won four championships and they've won zero because like, a little I, bit. I, I rewatched that Denver Nuggets game again last night. That was a horrible defensive effort from Boston. And you know who was terrible in that game defensively? Jason Tatum. Getting lost, constantly off ball, caught ball watching. Jokic burned him so many different times when he was, you know, not paying attention. And, you know, what's funny is like I, when I look at my MVP criteria, that first big one, like are you in the conversation for the best player in the world? When Jason Tatum is actually locked in, I think he's one of the very best perimeter defenders in the league. And yes, and yes, he's a bad pull up jump shooter this year, especially in his mid range shooting has kind of fallen off a bit, but he takes so many threes that in terms of his overall efficiency, he's still a very efficient scorer who score and and his playmaking has not been as good this year, even as it was in the playoffs last year. And again, a big part of that, I think is for whatever reason, he's kind of doubled down on some of his worst tendencies this year in terms of tunnel vision and just plowing into the lane and, uh, and, and trying to finish. He's actually finished at the rim pretty well this year overall, but like it's, it's kind of a mix bag with Tatum but the ceiling with what his top end is I still think is in the conversation for best player in the world I wouldn't have him there but he's in the conversation he's the best player on the best team in the league and the on-off stats for the record the Celtics have the most talented team in the league in my opinion if you were ranking rosters Boston's number one I don't think that's I don't think that's up for debate I mean do you think there's a talented roster more than Boston I might quibble and say the Pelicans are deeper, but I think Tatum is the best player on, like, if you combine those two teams. And that obviously matters within this conversation. So, yeah, I think Boston probably is the most talented team overall when including Jason Tatum. So it's important to look at, yes, the Celtics are super talented, but if you look at the on-off numbers, I can't remember exactly what it is off the top of my head, but there's still like a solid eight, nine points better per 100 possessions when he's on versus when he's off. At least that's what it was yeah. when I looked last, which was God knows how long ago. But I, it, I, it's, I, it's almost all. So I have them up right now. He, they're averaging 121.5 points per 100 possession when he's on the court, 110.7 when he's off the court. So it's almost all offensively related. And that goes to show how much attention he takes def- or yeah. offensively from opposing defense. So, yeah, I, I think your case is defensible and mine is too. And I think that's also kind of the anatomy of how close this list is. Yeah, like when I compared Jason Tatum to Joel Embiid particularly, Joel Embiid has a higher true shooting percentage. He's averaging more points per game and has been a better defender than Jason Tatum this year. Like that, that's the argument almost, I feel like, right? <laughs> uh, but, done, if done. You account for, <laughs> but if you account for minutes played, I do think that Jason closes the gap in a pretty real way. I just went with the guy that I think has been a little bit more effective this year. In the case of Giannis versus Jason Tatum, Giannis has been just a drastically better defender than Jason Tatum this year at the end of the day, and they've been pretty mm-hmm. close offensively. I would give probably the nod to Jason Tatum, but not to the extent where the defense has been. I think Luka's just been way better than Jason Tatum this year offensively. Like drastically, drastically that's better. And then unassailable. Good. Yeah. yeah. That's unassailable. So mm-hmm. I ended up with Tatum at six because of it. And 
I think that this this is a six-person tier, and I think Jason Tatum absolutely has a real chance to still win MVP. He just ended up being the guy ranked last out of the best six guys in the league. So interesting point that we're going to end up now with the same top two. Yeah. And I think that this is the top two, just straight up. Absolutely. Do you want to go first or me in terms of who you have it to? I well, think no, let, we have, say who I think have, we have the same. I think we'd have the same. But okay. let's get I had I had Jokic at two. I KD also have Jokic one. at two. And I have KD at one. And I just want to read for you the Bet MGM. Shout out Bet MGM, partner of the Athletic Sportsbook. Uh I want to read for you the MVP futures right now because they do not make sense to me. Uh, Luka Doncic is the favorite at three to one. Jason Tatum, seven to two. Nikola Jokic, four to one. Giannis Antetokounmpo, four to one. Kevin Durant is nine to one to win MVP. Kevin Durant he's, is he's, nine. He's been the one. best basketball player this year. Jason, no one's played when, better basketball than Kevin Durant this year. When I looked last week and talked about this, Kevin Durant was twenty-five to one to win MVP. Ugh. It was, it's crazy. Let's talk about Jokic first, because I want to put this into context for people. I did this on the last podcast, but I actually pulled more numbers now to make people understand this. I think that there's going to be a lot of pushback to Nikola Jokic winning MVP for a third straight time. I do. And frankly, like I am someone that I tend to care about the legacy of what these things will look like. 15 years down the road than what I think most people do or maybe should, uh, to be honest, if we're trying to do this on a year to year basis. But I care about the fact that like, it might look kind of silly if Nikola Jokic wins three straight MVPs 15 years down the road. Here's what I think is kind of important to say. Nikola Jokic is one of the top, 15 players in NBA history, uh, straight up, maybe top 20 so far. I would like to see him win a title maybe until we get to top 15, but Nikola Jokic, what he is doing this season is insane. I mentioned this on the last podcast. He is basically like, if you made Dirk Nowitzki, the best passer in the world, (laughs) seriously, seriously, Nikola Jokic so far this season is averaging 26 points, 11 rebounds, 9.5 assists on a 69.2 true shooting percentage that is 12 points higher than league average. Per 100 possessions, Nikola Jokic is averaging 37.1 points, 16 rebounds, 14 assists. He is shooting 63% between 3 and 10 feet, 47% between 10 and 16 feet, and 68% on shots between 16 feet and the three-point line. Obviously, Dirk Nowitzki made a killing from the mid-range. That is unassailable. That is what made him a top 20 to top 25 player of all time. In the season that Dirk won MVP, Dirk averaged 36.4 points per 100, so fewer than Jokic. He averaged 13.2 rebounds, fewer than Jokic. Obviously, drastically fewer assists. On a 60.5 true shooting percentage, that was only six points higher than league average at the time. Nikola Jokic is basically eclipsing the best scoring season that Dirk Nowitzki ever had so far this season, while also being the best passer in the world. 
this is breaking my brain. This is why we have to talk about this guy as much as we do. This is why when people don't watch the Denver Nuggets and like just go, oh, like, yeah, Nikola Jokic, he hasn't won anything yet. No, like this is why we have to talk about this guy. He is literally, if you gave Dirk Nowitzki the superpower of being the best passer on planet Earth, while also being like the most unselfish teammate and player who makes everyone better on planet Earth. That's why this guy might win three straight MVPs. Think about just how crazy that is. That is crazy. Like, I can't wrap my head around Nikola Jokic when I watch him. It's it's the most exciting, fun, thrilling, enthralling brand of basketball. On top of it, it is just statistically like breaking my brain. He he breaks basketball in so many different ways because of the way he processes the game. Jason, why do you have Nikola Jokic at number two? You know, uh, you you've laid it out perfectly. Uh, what what I what I would contribute is you know what stands out the most to me with Jokic just as a fan of the game of basketball is and i think it actually is directly related to how little hype he gets is it's the cliche he makes it look easy but it's not that he's making it look easy from the standpoint of uh like kevin durant to me makes it look easy because he's so damn tall that difficult shots are actually easier for him with Jokic, he makes the game of basketball like the actual decision making (laughs) process of five on five basketball for hundreds of possessions you know 100 possessions a game he makes that look easy and and it's and it's he's got such a command of of capitalizing on the easy opportunities that present themselves in a game i'll give you an example there's a play against boston last night he's at the top of the key kcp's on the left wing and it's it's kind of like semi-transition, like they're not really in their half-court set yet. They haven't gotten ready to run anything. But Jokic just notices that Tatum's kind of gapping. But he's not really doing anything. Like Tatum's kind of like having a lazy possession where he's kind of just right. standing halfway between Jokic and KCP. He just throws a little swing pass to KCP. KCP quick rip through, goes right by Tatum because Tatum's out of position. Draws help, swing pass to Bruce Brown in the corner, knocks down a three. And I'm sitting there thinking like, that's easy basketball. Like that's Jokic going like, I don't need to post up and draw a double team. I don't need to run an inverted pick and roll or to run this other set that we run. They're not guarding KCP. Let him, let me let him make a basketball play. The yeah. the way he starts the break in transition just by uh, by uh, pushing the ball up and looking for guys running the wings or or yeah. or just li- little little lapses and guys not paying attention to a guy cutting back door. He take. He capitalizes on every single easy opportunity that presents itself in a basketball game. And then he takes it away on the other end. Like almost every slow footed big in the league is a problem in transition defense. We talked about this with Joel Embiid earlier. It's a huge problem. These big lumbering bigs that don't like to run the floor. You know who runs the floor extremely well? Nikola Jokic. It's almost funny the way when someone else gets a rebound, how he drops his head and just sprints like crazy up the floor to get it to position. He absolutely does. And and you would be surprised at how many points per game that saves you just in transition defense, let alone all the transition offense possessions where you're getting a cross match. And now you got Derek White on you or some other little guard. And now it's a panic double team that ends up leading in an open shot for someone else. Like he just, he makes the game of basketball easy because he's like, Hey, I don't need to win with difficulty and highlights. I just care about winning with whatever easy opportunities present themselves in a game. And as far as the three MVP things go, I don't really care. 
give me the right MVP. If he deserves it this year, then he deserves it. Like, and he very well might. Like, I would have picked Giannis as my MVP last year. So I don't, I would not have picked Jokic last year. I would have. So if we were talking about, if we were talking about MVP list 10 years from now, you and I might be going like, Hey, remember when Giannis got robbed in that second year, but I wouldn't care that Jokic got it the third time because if he deserves it this year, he deserves it. And the, the on-off numbers are a little misleading because I do think that the types of spot-up opportunities that teammates get with Jokic are very different than what they get in the bench groupings. And I think that that can disrupt players' rhythm. I think that's why when you look at net rating stuff, the guys that are playing primarily with Jokic, like the starters, have really good net ratings, but then the bench players struggle. I I think if they overlapped that a little bit, you'd have similar problems where guys like KCP would struggle with bench groups. Because I I think that the just the fundamental way that they get the basketball with Jokic is so different than the way it is in other possessions. So I think the on-off numbers are a little inflated, but there's no doubt that he's still monumentally valuable to what they do on a winning. Uh, Here's one last wild stat for you, and then I'll kick it back to you. Uh, Jokic has played 33 games this year, and they've lost his minutes eight times. So 25 of the 33 games, they've won his minutes. That's insane. That's crazy. crazy. The the other thing with the on-off numbers is that they're playing DeAndre Jordan. Like, yeah, exactly. The worst like, player in the NBA. And, and he might be yeah. the worst player in the NBA. So that's going to skew the numbers as well. So no, a hundred percent. That is the on-off numbers. Like I care about them. I don't really care about them. I care more about the fact of what you just said. The Nuggets just win their minutes when Jokic is out there. And we can talk about the defensive deficiencies. Like I think he has not been very good in half-court defense this year. I think he has not been quite as effective in some of their ball screen coverages. I think that like they love to run that like show and recover uh, ball screen coverage. Like if they can, uh, they don't do it all the time now, but like that'd be what they would prefer to do. I think he's just been a little bit worse in all of their ball screen coverages across the board this year. And because of it, not because of it, their defense is struggling in general. He is a part of their defense struggling uh, in a pretty real way, but it doesn't matter. Because when you average 125 points per 100 possessions when the guy is out on the fucking court, that's game. Like, it's that's that just simple. kind of game. The so, game is a scoreboard game. The game is the scoreboard. I still don't have him at number one on MVP. You still don't <laughs> have him at number one. I have Kevin Durant at number one. And Kevin Durant consistently breaks my brain watching him play basketball. Like, how – we just talked about how easy it is for Nikola Jokic. Like Nikola Jokic is more of an algorithm that's just like processing, processing, processing 97 different things at once. Kevin Durant just makes things look aesthetically so pleasing and so easy just through his sheer presence. Now, Kevin Durant this year is currently averaging 30.7 30.7 rebounds, five assists. He is shooting 56% from the field, 36% from three, 93% from the line. His pull-up numbers, which I am sure that you have in front because you busted them out earlier, are absolutely bonkers. His mid-range numbers are absolutely like brain-breaking in terms of how good they are. Uh, Kevin Durant currently this season from – the mid-range areas from 10 to 16 feet, he's shooting 60.1%. From 16 <laughs> to the three-point line, he's shooting 54.5%. Uh, I'll pull that up in terms of like what that means contextually compared to everyone else. I cannot imagine anywhere is even in that anyone else is even in the ballpark that he is in terms of how good he is as a mid-range shooter right now. Uh, Jason, why do you have Kevin Durant as your MVP so far at the midway point of the season? 
So if I'm not mistaken, that means that he's shooting better everywhere from mid-range than Russell Westbrook is shooting at the rim. <laughs> uh, I Okay, so I have another crazy stat for you on Kevin Durant because, you know, one of the big things that really stood out to me is, um, you know, you went over his scoring, which has obviously been otherworldly. We talked about his defense earlier, and I think he's a foundationally great defensive player for that Nets team. I think he should, it does, and he absolutely deserves to make an all-defense team this year. And I hope that he – I think this is by far his best defensive season, at least since 2017, if not since his career started. That's the type of defense that we're seeing from him just by virtue of engaging and using his length to make plays. Um, but a huge part of this particular season has been the sheer amount of times that other teams have been trapping him on on ball screens. And, and it's funny because he – has never been thought of as a great passer. I've always thought he's been a little underrated as a passer. I really came yeah. on to the Kevin Durant passing thing in the 2018 finals in game four, where I was like, okay, he just, he just played a LeBron game in LeBron's house. Like that was weird, you know, like where he was just picking them apart uh, uh, from the top of the floor. Um, but like, he's kind of been thought of as like, Oh, he's a five and a half assist for three and a half turnover guy. Like he's not a high level playmaker, blah, blah, blah. But too frequently we don't realize that the goal of passing is not to pass to the guy who scores. It's for the team to score. And more often than not, it's about creating that initial advantage. And most teams are trapping that Brooklyn Nets high pick and roll and uh, sending a body towards the short roller and the short rollers ending up making most of the plays, which they've countered by, putting TJ Warren there a lot, putting Kyrie Irving there a lot to make sure that that guy who ends up catching the ball in that short roll is a guy that can make a play off the dribble and they're getting a lot of good stuff out of it. But here's a wild stat for you. So among all ball handlers in the league who have run at least 100 pick and rolls, Kevin Durant is number one in points per possession. Uh, The Nets are scoring 1.26 points per Kevin Durant pick and roll. That's number one. Derrick Rose, (laughs) sneaky number two at 1.22 and Steph Curry at three at 1.21. But he's got a healthy lead as the best pick and roll ball handler in the league in terms of creating uh, points there. And in a good present, I think about a th- uh, two thirds of those are him shooting, but another third of them are him just drawing that initial attention and creating that initial advantage that guys can capitalize on. I think, I think that if, if I had him, I think he's the MVP. If the season ends today, I'm not sure if it's sustainable uh, from the standpoint of like, I do think the nets have less talent than some of the other teams in this list. So I think that some other teams will end up with better records, which will probably hurt his case to win the MVP but in terms of availability and the quality of basketball Katie and Steph were the two players that I saw this year that stood out from the rest and Steph got hurt and Katie's just been out there every single night and he's playing huge minutes and I I, I think I, I I feel pretty passionately that if the season ended today that he'd be the number one MVP guy right now yeah, I would also throw Jokic into that three-person mix as well. I agree with you on Steph and KD. Uh, so I also just want to bring up, and I, I fucking hate like the idea of like the narrative within this, uh-huh. right? But I actually think that like it's important here in a lot of ways. Uh, we are like what two months out from the entire like Kyrie Irving uh, anti-Semitism kerfuffle that like. <laughs> not only impacted them off the court, but actually impacted them on the court. Like Kyrie Irving was suspended for that. Uh, Steve Nash got fired because they were a total shit show at the start of the year. Then you have the Kyrie Irving thing happen where it threatens to like make them an even more like shit show league wide, even bigger shit show league wide. Like 
who who do you think is like the guy that's like holding that team together? I think I feel like Kevin Durant doesn't get talked about in terms of leadership, like in terms of oh he's like he's he's a front runner. He's a guy that uh, nobody nobody like wants to listen to. Like he's no. Who do you think the guy that's been like the steady presence on that team has been? Who do you think the guy is that like led them through that tough time? Yeah, you can say Jacques Vaughn. I'm sure Jacques Vaughn played a role, but you don't. Coaches don't play as big of a role as Kevin freaking Durant, one of the 10 best players of all time, one of the all-time scorers in NBA history, certainly the best player on that team. This is an elite Kevin Durant leadership season on the court. He's leading in terms of his ability to keep them together offensively, keep them in flow, but he's also been tremendous this year defensively. He has been so critical to everything that they've been able to do defensively this year. His help defense is absolutely off the charts. He's averaging, he's in the top 10 in blocks per game right now. He's been absolutely tremendous. He's been everywhere as a help defender this season. I can't get over how strong Kevin Durant's leadership is. And I think that is something that he doesn't get nearly enough credit for. And I think he deserves a lot of it in the face of what happened with the Brooklyn Nets this year, uh, with Kyrie Irving, with Steve Nash, with all of the number of things that occurred. Kevin Durant requesting a trade and then coming in and like being super professional about coming in and like being that dude again. Like, I I guess that you could hold against him the fact that he requested the trade but it didn't impact him and it clearly didn't impact his impact on the team so I do just want to give a shout out like I I think that it's hard to look past anyone else is having an impact in terms of the leadership department that Kevin Durant has had when the Brooklyn Nets currently are tied for second in the league they have the second best record in the NBA one and a half back, I think, from Boston, if I remember correctly. They're one and a half back from Boston. That's right. Like, that that should not be happening. And it's happening no. because of Kevin Durant. I want, I'm so glad you brought up the leadership piece because, like, Kevin Durant saved this team and saved yeah. this season when it was as broken as any that I've ever seen. To start the year, they were so bad defensively and so bad on the glass, fired the coach. The Kyrie thing was happening. They were floundering in the standings. It was bad. And, you know, I I think it's super fascinating because I think KD used one fundamental thing to galvanize the group, and it was his love for basketball. Like, it was so... Because if I'm not not mistaken, when the Kyrie thing first went down, they went on a road trip if I remember correctly, and I, I could be wrong about that, but they went and played some road games. And during that stretch, it was like, it was like just the guys in the hotels and the arenas and their leader is such like, say what you want about Kyrie. Kevin Durant is no nonsense. That dude is basketball is his one true love. There's not even a second place. It's like basketball. And then like two through five are vacant. And then there's six, which, you know, maybe his love for music or football or whatever it is like that dude fundamentally loves basketball more than anything else in the world. And I think that that passion and that energy kind of percolated through the roster. And there's a lot of guys on that team that are sneaky, like hoopers, like guys that love to play basketball, like Cam Thomas is kind of a hooper, you know, like Edmund Sumner is kind of a hooper. Kyrie Irving, you know, uh, his alter ego is that of a hooper, <laughs> you know, like a, his primary <laughs> ego might be something else, but his alter ego is, is a hooper at his core, you know? And like, 
I think that I think that when that that group just kind of they they played their way through it, if that makes sense, yeah. and and their leader led the way. And once they kind of established a little bit of belief, that train just kept going. And, you know, they needed that signature win after, and they had that rough loss to Boston, but they've racked up some impressive wins over the last couple of weeks too. Like I, I, I'm so glad you brought up the leadership piece because it's such an underrated part of this case. Like he could, there, it would have been so easy for him to mail it in and nobody would have said a damn thing. And, and and they would have been like, yeah, the, the roster's bad. Like, I don't blame him. You know, like he's probably trying yeah. to get out of here. And instead he's like, no, I'm just going to play basketball and do the best that I can with this thing. And it turns out he's so damn good. Like those percentages on the jump shots don't make sense. They don't make sense. No. No. If you if you could you would lock if you you could lock Division one basketball players in a gym on a shooting machine and they wouldn't shoot sixty percent from the mid range. Yeah. Most of them. Like it, it's it's outrageous. It's outrageous the type of stuff that he's doing this year. It's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. Uh, Jason, I'm glad we agree on this. I, I thought I was coming in a bit hot with Kevin Durant. But <laughs> I'm glad that we're here. I'm glad we came to this consensus. Look, I have Kevin Durant and Nikola Jokic like 1A and 1B right now. And then I have okay. kind of everyone else like 3 to 6. But uh, yeah, man, Kevin Durant. Holy shit. I'm glad I'm glad we came to this. I'm glad we, we, we've, we've brokered a real uh, a consensus here among two of us. I like it. That was a lot of fun, Sam. This was great. Jason, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people uh, where you want to be found. Tell the people what's going on. Okay, so you can follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT. I kind of do show announcements and stuff there. I also live tweet through games and do some film breakdowns. Uh, the shows themselves, you can find them on YouTube, on the Volumes YouTube channel, or wherever you get your podcasts under Hoops Tonight. Jason does great work. I meant what I said at the top of the show. Jason has become one of my go-to people that I am looking to for basketball content, just straight up. Uh, it's him, Nikai Duncan, Steve Jones, other guys that I think really, really do strong work in the space. Jason is absolutely phenomenal. I would go recommend going to check out Hoops Tonight. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. I will have rookie rankings coming Wednesday. That will come with an accompanying podcast with Adam Spinella talking about rookie rankings. Uh, Friday, I will have something with Mark Schindler talking about NBA stuff. Then we'll get into next week, next week. But until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.